Today's interview contains frank discussion of domestic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, we are recording live here. I am in a room that is approximately 10 feet by 10 feet at the Lermer's house. I'm here with Mike and Susie Jacobson, and uh, this is going to be our clap right here. All right, let's uh, synchronize the microphones and all that good stuff. Susie, why don't you why don't you just briefly tell us? Actually, no, I take it all back. I take it all back. Forget what I just said. Let's pretend your life is going to be made into a movie. How do you think that story would begin? Well, it would probably begin with... Hi, I'm Daniel Ostendorf from Longview, Texas, where I serve as the alumni director at Letourneau University. I love listening to Compelled. It is awe-inspiring to hear what God has done and is doing. It's Psalm 145 lived out. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. It reminds me of the woman at the well who, after meeting Jesus, couldn't wait to tell her entire town about the one who gave her living water. I can hardly get through an episode without crying at the goodness of our God, His grace, His steadfast love, and especially the new life people find when they accept Christ as both their Lord and their Savior. May today's episode encourage you and inspire you to share the incredible news of Christ and of God's compelling love. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. During our last episode, we heard from John Barros, who has suffered through cancer, brain aneurysms, a stroke, chronic pain, and more. In the world's eyes, he would have been considered a broken man, and yet God has chosen to use John to save countless unborn lives from abortion. Again, that's our previous episode with John Barrios. This week, our guest is Susie Jacobson. As a little girl, Susie lost everything that mattered to her, her home, her family, and her friends. But in her loneliness, she found one friend who would never leave her behind. So gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. Susie and her husband, Mike, live right outside Cincinnati, Ohio. But earlier this year, our paths crossed when Susie came down to Texas for a women's retreat. I've known Susie for about 10 years now, and I've heard bits and pieces of her story. But I was especially excited to hear Susie's entire journey of faith from beginning to end when we sat down one early morning at a friend's home. My mom was born to wealthy socialite parents in Milwaukee and, you know, grew up in affluence, uh, but she also dealt with some really painful situations. Her mother was an alcoholic and and uh, ended up facing divorce. I don't think there was a lot of love and affection in the family, but uh, she was the oldest of four. And I think by the time things were really getting bad there, she was getting old enough to go her own way, I think getting out of the house when she could and so on. And uh, on the other hand, my dad was from Jordan, a very different cultural experience. You know, uh, he was the oldest of his clan, but his dad had three wives. And, uh, you know, many 
children amongst them. I don't think he was actually the oldest. I think he was the oldest boy. And, uh, you know, the treatment towards him was to be a certain way by others in the family, uh, almost like royalty served and that kind of thing. On the other hand, the cultural situation brought him some abuse, physical abuse. I remember a story about uh, that he said he was born left-handed, but that was not acceptable uh, there. And so he was physically dealt with until he was right-handed. But that was the culture. And uh, so, you know, the two of them met when going to school. My dad came over from the other country, and he was uh, uh, studying mathematics. He eventually was a mathematician and statistician. And I think he was tutoring her in math, uh, and I think that's how they met. Anyway, that's kind of where that story began. My mom, I believe, married him a bit out of rebellion. I think her parents were completely against it. So she, I believe she ended up eloping with my dad and kind of, you know, she had to deal with the, the choices she made. Uh, she ended up going uh, immediately back to Jordan and I believe probably agreed to live there, but found it just absolutely unacceptable, unlivable for her. So it was complicated. I don't doubt that my dad liked it here and wouldn't have minded coming back, but I believe he owed some obligation to the government and and there was other there were just certain things that had to take place for him to be able to come back here, but they did. They came back and settled in uh, Midwest and that's where I was raised. So that's kind of how it all began. I remember believing in God from my earliest memories. I had a belief in God. I don't know who introduced me to that idea, concept. Uh, I know there were times when my mom prayed with me at bedtime, but they were certainly just little children's prayers. It was me praying, you know, my little childish thoughts. Um, But I certainly believed in the existence of God. We had no church affiliation whatsoever really don't even know to this day really what my mom's was growing up. My dad, of course, was impacted by his Middle Eastern culture. And while that was ingrained deeply, profoundly, uh, it when he was living in the States, it was kind of c'est la vie, and it was uh, lived as he wanted to live. Uh, so I heard things, you know, knowing his religious background and so on, but it didn't have a tremendous impact on my life at all. Susie was the middle of three children. She had an older and a younger brother, and they were all fairly close in age. Being raised in a multicultural family meant there were some idiosyncrasies about their household, but for the most part, they seemed like a normal family. Their dad worked in information systems for a Fortune 500 company, their mom stayed at home, and the kids attended their local grade school. You might have even said that their household was slightly religious, just a regular family. But in reality, away from the public eye, things were much darker. We pretty much grew up in a very volatile environment. Uh, My mom was the stable person in our lives, far more gentle in nature, very loving. My dad was, you know, just bred fear in us, really. There was, from our earliest recollections, raised voices, very abusive in terms of both verbally, physically, some manner of moral aspect to that, but uh, mostly physical harm uh, to all of us, um, including my mom. Just uh, we didn't see that as much as we just had the everyday stuff with with kids. There was, you know, reactions to different things that were just violent in nature. I remember a time that uh, 
I had stayed the night in my dad's room when he was out of town and had set an alarm. It was all exciting to be in there. I think he had a TV and he had, uh, I don't know, the bigger room. And for whatever reason, I thought that would be all kinds of fun. So I stayed in there and I think I set the alarm for early. Oh, because I think I wanted to get up for Saturday morning cartoons. I think that was the issue. (laughs) Well, anyway, by the next night, I was back in my room and my dad was woken up to the alarm and I was sound asleep in a dark room. Uh, You know, it's probably... I don't know, time six or seven o'clock and, uh, you know, just woke up to being, you know, beaten and hit and and smacked all around until I was literally on the other side of my bed. I had no idea what was going on or why, but, uh, you know, just basically left sort of battered and bruised on the other side of the bed. It could be just something uh, like that. You know, we were pretty much seen as servants in our home, and it was, you know, get me my water, and when I tell you to jump, you ask how high, and if for some reason, you know, you weren't, you know, behaving yourself in the way you thought you should, you would just be smacked, or uh, occasionally there was being kicked, you know, kicked in the stomach, getting on the floor, being pushed into a corner. You know, it was that kind of violence. Uh, Later, it got worse as we grew older, And then particularly my older brother dealt with some, you know, getting punched uh, and things like that. But for the most part, it was uh, the smacking and, you know, the hitting and occasionally the shoving, pushing, that kind of thing. I really found my security in my mom. She was the one that I would stay close to physically emotionally, that kind of thing. So I spent many a night like huddled in my bed with the sheets over my head, weeping, you know, over what I heard uh, happening between them, Uh, mostly just incredible verbal bashing and just very degrading, you know, you're worthless, that kind of thing. Just so angry over whatever the situation was. So that was just characterized our home. And it was just a relief when dad wasn't around. In the midst of all the physical and emotional trauma, Susie's mom remained the constant source of sanity and grounding in Susie's young life. And while she did her best to protect them, Susie's mom was actually hatching a plan for them to escape the abuse and even recruited Susie and her brothers to help. Well, we knew years before my parents were divorced that my mom was thinking about it and planning for it. She would tell us, you know, kind of hang in there. I'm doing my best to look at schooling options, to look at how I could find work once again and get us out of this situation. And so I knew that long before it ever happened. As we were moving closer to that time, we were having to do some things to prepare. Back in the day when tape recorders had a couple of buttons you had to press, we had to have those hidden in the house in different places. And when things escalated at home, Somebody would have to brave it and try to get to that tape recorder so that those things could be recorded because those things my mom wanted. I'm sure she was being uh, counseled by an attorney to get in evidence and things like that of abuse, that kind of thing. So those were scary times, and we did have escalating violence in the home. The last really major battle I remember, and I must have been about 11 years old, was 
I had been the culprit, unfortunately, and left my heating blanket on all night. And I guess dad got wind of it. I don't even know how that happened, but I got quite a beating for it. And it upset my mom. And I think she was kind of coming to the end of herself, be exasperated with all this going on. So dad went off to work and I think mom called the electric company and uh, I remember she found out that it cost maybe three cents a night if you left it on all night or something. And she kind of pushed the envelope by by the time my dad got home, all the lights were off, candles were lit. <laughs> you know, I think she was just pushing the point that you did this to her when, you know, this is what it cost us and, and was making her point. And they ended up in a massive fight uh, about that. It was the first time I'd really seen my dad get so physical with my mom where he was, you know, holding her arm behind her back. You know, she was calling out, you're going to break my arm. He had punched her. I had never seen that before. And uh, she had some bleeding. This was going on where we kids could see it. Uh, we ended up behind the couch in the family room, where, and they were in an area where we could see this happening. And it was just very frightening. For the first time ever, I had never had the gumption, but I hollered out, leave her alone, let her go. You know, I'm sure that kind of, shocked him a bit. So it did uh, de-escalate. He pushed her and into the room where we were and said, go be with your children or something like that. But it was just very frightening. And that was near the end of that time. So it was things like that that were happening. And I am sure my mom was just counting down the days until she could move forward with divorce. I think my older brother was aware, but I did not know it was going to happen. But it was literally in the middle of the week, in the middle of a school day, that my mom showed up for me and my younger brother, uh, for all of us. And uh, I think, my, like I said, my older brother knew. But uh, she came and picked us up and had left a note for my dad and had arranged for us to go into the city to live with an aunt her youngest sister, who she was very close to, and who was going to allow us to live with her in her one-bedroom penthouse apartment throughout the process of the divorce. It was interesting because I was told, I was too young to be attentive enough to it, but I was told, hey, once we get into court, you know, your dad is probably gonna, you know, do some kind of shenanigans with his, you know, try to emotionally uh, manipulate things and pour on the tears or whatever, you know, just telling me things that were going to happen and trying to prepare me. But at this point, I get into court and I'm sitting next to my aunt. Uh, I don't remember all the details of the room, but I remember sitting next to her and my dad walked in and was being questioned or something. And he was just, as she said, there were tears and weeping and I just was shocked I was not prepared, unfortunately, and I just broke down. I'd never seen my dad cry a day in my life. And she kind of hid my head in her chest, and it was just trying to embolden me, you know, hey, if we're going to get through this, you're going to have to, you know, toughen up or he's going to use this against your mother. Look, your children are, you know, look at what you're doing to them and so on. So it was just quite an emotional experience, up and down with the emotions. But, you know, we, we had times in court. We were actually called back to judges' chambers individually as kids and asked personal questions about, you know, what took place there, uh, either physically or morally or whatever. And then, you know, came to the end of that, and it, the divorce obviously was granted. It was just like a huge weight off of everybody. 
just to back up a little, you know, my dad also uh, basically stripped my mom of all of her inheritance and other things that had, any monies that had come to her. We basically lived on the poverty end of things while he lived it up. Uh, you know, he was an immoral man. There were just uh, consequences connected to that, you know, just very painful uh, for my mom in every which way. And so we had very little. Because my security was so founded in my mom after the divorce and just the idea that anything would happen to her, uh, I used to uh, ask her and say, you know, Mommy, you're not going to die, are you? And she'd say, oh, no, I'm not going to die. And i say, you promise? I promise. There were some significant changes that took place. Uh, one of my mom's sisters, not the one we had lived with, but a, another one, invited us to a uh, vacation Bible school where she went. She was a Christian, and um, we didn't know much about all that, but my mom sent us kids. That, well, it was just my younger brother and I uh, that went, went to that uh, church Bible school. And because I do believe God was already working in my heart, uh, I was ripe and ready. There was not anything in regard to blaming God for my life or anything of that sort to keep me from responding. I was just very ready to receive Christ as my Savior. So there was a wonderful teacher there, wonderful Bible teacher there, Mrs. Thauer. Uh, she talked to me about uh, understanding my sin and that I needed a, a Savior and uh, took me into the sanctuary of the church there and we knelt together and I prayed and accepted Christ as my Savior and it truly changed my life. Now there was a long journey, but something definitely changed there. I remember going back to my aunt's house and down the block there was a girl that I played with and I got together with her after that and I told her all about Christ. I told her about uh, the gospel and uh, she prayed with me right there and received Christ. And so there was obviously uh, just an enthusiasm and a, a joy about what had taken place in my life. When we came home, there wasn't church. In fact, Sunday was cleaning day at my house, but there definitely was an openness to talking about the Lord. And uh, my younger brother had come with me and he had responded to the gospel. And I do remember a sweet story of being with my mom in the car and I don't, I, my aunt must have been with us because she's the one that recalls this story to me often. But where I said, you know, mom, what about you? When are you going to respond to, to God? When are you going to accept Jesus as your savior? And in her shy, reserved way, uh, she said, oh, Susie, you know, I told you I'd already done that. And so that's always my reminder that she did uh, respond. So very much uh, of a comfort. Susie's simple, childlike faith was springing to life, and perhaps had even done something to foster or bolster her mother's faith. But little did she know that she would need to rely on her newfound faith much sooner than she would have ever imagined. More on that after the break. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. 
but they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Welcome back to Compelled. We've just heard Susie Jacobson describe the physical and emotional abuse that her family experienced at the hands of her father and their escape from it. A few months later, Susie attended a vacation Bible school and accepted Jesus as her personal savior around the age of 13. Her faith in Christ was beginning to bloom and life seemed to be brimming with new opportunities now that they were free from Susie's abusive dad. But just a few months later, everything came to a screeching halt. It was one of those Sundays that was cleaning day, and I had gotten up before my brothers and gotten my rooms cleaned and headed out with some friends. And we were down the block from where I lived. I was 14, barely 14. I had just turned 14 in July, and this is September. And there was a commotion coming down the street with fire truck and ambulance and police cars and whatnot. And... I could see that from where I was, and I could see how it was following down one street, turned on the other, and then onto my street. So my friends and I were like, whoa, what's going on? Let's follow it. And so we were just running, you know, to see where it was going to stop. And sure enough, there it was in front of my own home. I just stood outside for a moment looking in, and my friends just started, they just broke down and cried. Well, they had just lost a parent not too long ago. Uh, uh, before that. And so I think they were probably feeling the emotions of what they were going through, but I didn't know quite what to make of everything. So I went ahead and ran inside and I saw my mom laying on the floor. And um, the people that were working on her asked, do you have information for any relative that we could contact? Meanwhile, they're working on my mom. Something, you know, was, uh, had obviously happened. 
Well, to backpedal a little bit, uh, my brothers had still been at home, and my mom wasn't feeling really well. She had suffered from ulcers, and she sent them off to a store to get her some medicine. And when they came home, they found her slumped over and proceeded to, my older brother proceeded to give her CPR. My younger brother called the police, and that's how all that uh, uh, started. And so I had to literally step over her and go to my room and get an address book. I remember when I went to go get that address book, you know, for the medics, um, when they sent me back there, I remember pouring out my drawer to get to my address book, and I'm a neat and tidy. And so I, I had this thought in my head, oh, mom's going to just laugh and say, oh, Susie, you're such a worrywart, <laughs> because I was racing around uh, all concerned about her. You know, of course, she was going to be okay. But uh, after uh, we were all let outside the house, eventually, you know, she was put on a gurney and taken out and taken by ambulance, and others took us to the hospital. And uh, we found out later that day that uh, at 42 years old, she had suffered from a massive heart attack and died. By the time I got home, I got that news I hadn't known when I left the hospital. I remember that it went from a beautiful, warm, sunny day, and when I left the hospital, it was uh, just pouring down rain and just dreary and exactly how my emotions were, you know, when I heard that news. So obviously, total and complete shock and uh, just my mind swirling over what now, you know? What really tells the story all the better is when my aunt took us home with her that night. She lived about an hour from us and we went with her. There was some comfort in that because we had lived with her. She knew us the best and uh, she gave us a lot of hope that, you know, it's going to be okay. We're going we're gonna to make a family and so on. But her own circumstances were not fantastic at the time. Uh, she was with someone that she was not married to at the time that I think there was just many complicating factors to that relationship. And what ended up happening is I woke up the next day. We were all going to be taken back to, to our home and pre preparation for, you know, wake and funeral and whatnot. And I woke up and I was in some kind of uh, like shock. Uh, I was uh, vomiting, I, I couldn't open my eyes. They literally just like could not open them. Just was very, very sick. And I got back and I was basically put on the couch to stay, you know, what, what else was anybody gonna do with me while other things had to be addressed. And grandparents did come in and uh, other family members to, to try to help. But I laid there on that couch and just, just really couldn't move, couldn't open my eyes. I was uh, sick enough that I couldn't even attend her wake, my mom's wake. So that really kind of tells, gives a physical picture of the condition I was in. She died on a Sunday uh, by that, uh, Thursday was her funeral, and I was well enough to go to that. Uh, that in itself was obviously a difficult experience. I didn't feel a lot of comfort. The family wasn't extremely demonstrative. I felt pretty isolated, and so that was sad. And and I just so wanted to... I, I never felt like I had closure. I never got to see her like my older brother did and feel like I was saying goodbye. And so when we had the burial, and I saw that, you know... There was nothing but a small urn to be buried. That was probably rock bottom, you know, just that that was 
the end of everything. There was no hope. If there's some kind of hope that is strangely in the back of someone's mind at a time like that, that was pretty traumatic just to experience that at the burial. We got back from the funeral, and we just assumed that we were going to go with my aunt that we had lived with during the divorce, because that was what we even understood from our mom if anything happened to her. Well, apparently, there had been a big family meeting and an agreement that that wasn't the best, and that was all unbeknownst to us. So we got home and were told we had uh, one hour to pack anything we could pack, and that we were going to be uh, moving away with my mom's brother and his family uh, that we knew the least of all the relatives. And my older brother was going to stay back and live with uh, a family in town. He was a junior at the time, and he was just going to go ahead and finish up high school and then get on his own. And so there was that separation and there was the just absolute bewilderment about what was happening, you know, with our lives. And so we got a box and we got in the station wagon with the uh, with our uncle and aunt and their family and headed to a place i don't think we had ever even visited them in the town they were living in you know which was significantly away from where i had grown up so it was just yeah just quite quite a shock that way so that would just brought on a whole new uh, level of not just bewilderment but uh you know trauma even into our new situation. Over the course of just one week, Susie and her brothers had lost everything they had known or loved, their mother, their home, and any semblance of stability or security. And now they were living essentially with strangers. But if Susie thought that this new home would be a reprieve from the trauma she had just experienced, she was wrong. It, it's pretty well described by the first night around the table that I recall, but my brother and I were sat down at the table and basically told that, uh, you know, we might have thought we were hot stuff in the town where we lived, but in their town, you know, we were just fleas on a big dog's back. Mm, you know, God love her, but your mom, she smoked or your, she did this or she did that and just really disparaging her. And Thankfully, we were young enough that some of it just didn't process. So uh, that was just kind of the introduction and basically spent our time there pretty much just feeling like, you know, never at home, never, you know, like I could never relax. I always felt like I should be doing something, earning my spot there. So uh, one of the hardest things was there was some kind of paranoia over the time that my younger brother and I spent together. Now, mind you, we were pouring into each other, uh, crying together, encouraging each other, trying to look toward a future, uh, those kinds of things. But for whatever reason, it seemed to be a threat. And so we were told that we could no longer spend time alone together. And so that was just pretty devastating. So our older brother was gone and pretty much out of our lives, and then the two of us were separated in that way. So it was just a lot of sadness. I continued to experience physical impact from everything that had taken place for over a year. Just my body experienced tremendous fatigue, even though you know there were plenty of times I could do school and activities and that kind of thing. But there were times I literally would rather sleep than eat and just come home and fall into bed. 
The family that we lived with, they were well off. They had a good name. We always thought they were sort of like the Brady Bunch, uh, uh, probably a bad uh, illustration. But I mean, they were an intact family. We had never had money or were an intact family or anything like that. They seemed to live well and all that seemed to do well together. But we were definitely felt like an imposition. We had always called them just by their names. We didn't use aunt and uncle in our family. It just that was how it was with everybody. And when we moved in, after a little while, we were told, you need to call us aunt so-and-so and uncle so-and-so. And uh, I think they probably just wanted others to make sure that they knew we weren't their actual children. <laughs> um, so that distinction was made. And then, you know, when they would take their family vacations, uh, my aunt's parents would stay with my younger brother and myself, and and they would have their vacations, that kind of thing. So uh, to be honest, at the time, I don't know that I really thought a whole lot about it. Uh, her parents were pleasant, and I enjoyed that. You know, it was just what characterized the relationship. And it just, you know, is more and more clear when you see just the way we were kept separated in that way. While it was hard at the time to understand why God had placed her in that challenging environment, even then he was working in Susie's life through others that she came into contact with. And by the time she reached high school, those experiences would help continue to draw her closer to Christ and deepen her own faith and walk with him. Some things began to develop uh, with uh, a guy I was dating that impacted me spiritually. There were church going, and and uh, so I began to develop more of an interest uh, in something outside of the church where I was a part of. Just seemed to be more life there. Then um, a- after that, I was uh, dating another fella, and uh, he invited me to my first Navigator's Bible study, and that was the first time ever that I got into God's word myself. Uh, that it was I heard sermons and you know I heard I had prayer books and things like that. but this was the first time I really began to delve in and my eyes were definitely opened. It was life and light and it was just an amazing experience for me to uh, enjoy that myself. It, it just so impacted me that I wanted to tell the world about Christ uh, in a way that you know being, kind of under the roof of the church uh, and that particular teaching and that kind of thing was really, it suppressed that. And this brought an interest that I hadn't had, a desire to develop, go deeper, learn more, so that, yeah, when I went to school, there was just an enthusiasm. I just wanted to take that message to everybody I met. College years were amazing times for me. I began to grow spiritually in ways I had never experienced before. A college ministry began on our campus and got involved with uh, other Christians that were really helping me to grow. I went to the church that they were going to. This, The people that were involved in that ministry came to this church as well, and they just wrapped me up and, and uh, took me under their wings. So that was just an amazing time. Uh, there was also a friend of a guy I was dating at the time uh, named Kevin, and he was a pistol. He was very uh, verbal about his faith, and when I had been a part of the other church, uh, he would just challenge my beliefs to no end. And we would debate and debate. And he ended up writing me a seven-page letter that changed my life. I mean, it was so full of scripture and just really what spoke to my heart in ways that I had never been exposed to before. And I knew that something had to change. And we had a wonderful college priest uh, at the time that really cared genuinely about the kids. And I went and I said, you know, I really need... 
need to make a change in my life. And he was so gracious and just encouraged me on. And that's when I started going to uh, uh, another church uh, in our in our college town. And this, uh, this one lady that was new on staff there began to disciple me, and uh, along with several other girls. And that just uh, was just the game changer for me, really poured into my life. It was really sweet because most of the other girls she was discipling had grown up in Christian homes. And I knew so little about the Bible. She would literally just spend time with me telling me Bible stories. It was that basic, but just so sweet. Uh, she's still a dear friend. And uh, so she poured into me. Like I said, that was just a massive time uh, of spiritual growth for me and developing other friendships, relationships with other believers, you know, that has just uh, impacted my whole life. Among the many individuals God was using to grow Susie's faith, there was one young man in particular she met around this time who really stood out to her. And that was Mike, the man who would eventually become her husband. But there was still one other man in her life who she needed to bring closure with. More on that after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right. You can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it or it didn't work out for you or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, 
then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compel, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back. Susie was now in her senior year of college and in a serious relationship with Mike, who would eventually become her husband. And during the course of their relationship, Susie was convicted that she should attempt to reconcile with the one other man who had figured so prominently in her earlier life, her abusive father. The Lord had just been doing a work in my heart. I didn't have a mom anymore. I knew dad had to be out there somewhere. And uh, I just really felt impressed to reach out, try to see if I could find him. I wanted, I'd never honored a parent before in that way, you know, and understood that concept. And certainly with the hope that I had in Christ, I wanted to be able to share that with my dad uh, if I had that opportunity. And so I just began to write different family friends from my childhood that I knew were connected with him and somebody knew his whereabouts and put me in touch with him and I sent him a snail mail back in the day. And uh, later on, uh, I got a call from him like in the middle of the night, I'm sure, which was a good time where he was at in the Middle East. And so, yeah, it was the first time I'd spoken to him. I was, I had probably gone from 12 to 21, maybe, you know, so it was for when you're, when those are the years of life, when you, when someone isn't there, it feels like a lifetime. So it was just almost like, It was just a very strange experience. But yes, uh, we connected. I told him uh, I was so zealous for the Lord. I, you know, I told him right away, Dad, I've, I've you know, put my faith and trust in Christ, and I'm a Christian, and I'm getting ready to spend the summer in Greece on a, you know, summer project. And, you know, I was just very excited to, you know, just said I really wanted to talk with him about that. And he was very conciliatory and uh, actually welcomed me to come over to Jordan and to see him. I had never been before. My mom had always cautioned us kids. She never put any alarm in us toward my dad, but uh, she'd always said, if you ever go to Jordan, don't go alone. Uh, So had that in the back of my mind. Well, Mike and I were dating at that time, and he was going to be spending the summer in Germany on a military stint. So I said, well, I'm dating this fellow. Would it be okay if he came with me? And he said, oh, sure, sure. And So at the end of our summers, he flew us over to Jordan. And so that was obviously an incredible experience to see him again for the first time. It was, you know, very different, of course, than as a child. There was no really intimidation factor overall. Uh, He was high up in the government. And so, you know, he kind of gave us some, laid down some rules really quickly. So very quickly, first time I see him, he basically tells us, you know, when you're here, this is your name because of course we had our names changed and that was a huge thing for him of course right it was a, an insult and so uh so you are now this and by this name and everybody that lives here embraces in our family embraces this religion and you need to understand that that's very important here uh, for a girl and said Mike was my cousin. He was going to introduce him as my cousin and then whatever. And we find out years later, like 
what all that meant. He didn't go into it all then, but we, you know, we understood that there were some dangers to us and that, you know, uh, some things that we hadn't realized we were facing at the time and he was just trying to cover the ground quickly. But we had a very good visit there. I did talk to him about the gospel. His take pretty much always was from that moment on till uh, he passed um, that, you know, we all serve the same God. He was very respectful of both of us and uh, we were very grateful for that. But, you know, just definitely wasn't you know, embracing any of the things that I shared. But we, I did have a wonderful time there and met uh, his new family, including another sibling from another marriage that he had had of a short-lived marriage. So yeah, it's very complex. Family is very complex over there. But yeah, it was uh, just an amazing experience. He came to the States about every other year. He worked with an institution here in the States as well, connected there. And uh, we would get together, all of us. It, you know, it took a while, probably longer for my brothers than for myself to really want to have more of a relationship with him. And I think they just really wanted him to just own what had happened. And he was never able to do that. So we did talk about it many times, and but he would give his perspective. And of course, we all knew what had happened. But, uh, you know, it's hard to live with that. You know, there's, I've heard of a guilt blame balance. You know, to live with yourself, you have to have as much, you know, uh, that you can point the finger uh, uh, on so to somebody else, you know, to deal, you know, blame somebody else to deal with the guilt you're dealing with. That has to be balanced somehow uh, when you don't have uh, the Lord to lean on or to bring cleansing from that. And so that's kind of how it always was, but we found a rhythm with each other that worked and uh, we love, we just came to very much love him and his family with Christ's love and, and just genuine love. And so we always enjoyed a very good relationship, him and my family. He was able to know some of his grandsons and hey, really all of them. So that was just very special, uh, even though it was very hard to know that he was not responding to the gospel and at times would say that we're not going to continue uh, to dialogue about this. But overall, it was a, a very respectful relationship. Sadly, in the end, my dad took his life. That was probably not shocking to our family because we knew that, uh, you know, he would make comments at times when he visited. Just, uh, I think there was a sense of, I want to control my destiny sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I would ask, are you in pain? Are you, you know, you're of sound mind, you have meaningful work, uh, you know, these kinds of things. But I think ultimately that's kind of what took over was just, I. I, I'm old enough, I want to determine this. And so it was surprising, but not shocking. But very sad, very hard for his family in the Middle East to deal with. Suicide is not seen as something that you show compassion toward. I think that was very difficult for his family to walk through. And so uh, we've just tried to be supportive where we could. The path to forgiveness and reconciliation with her father is an incredible testament to God's redeeming work in Susie's life. What had been meant for evil, God had still used for his good. But that was just the beginning of the path to healing from her past and bitterness for Susie. God still had more work to do. Well, having come from the background I came from, you know, I had a lot of baggage. And uh, one of the biggest issues for me was bitterness. There was, uh, you know, grew to be a great deal of bitterness toward extended family on my mom's side, of course, toward my dad. And 
while I don't, I wouldn't say that characterized my life. I mean, Jesus was certainly making massive differences in my, in my life, but that was just a, a big thing still to deal with. And so early in our marriage, we attended a seminar that addressed just all kinds of spiritual topics. And that was one of them. It was just an amazing experience for me to just feel for the Lord to use that to really bring conviction to my heart about bitterness and really how it the way it played out was I came under such conviction about my own sin and just longed to make, you know, to walk in freedom myself that it just freed me up then to want to extend that Christ-like forgiveness that I was re- going to receive to everybody else. And it literally was just, you know, a, a supernatural experience in terms of coming to a freedom there. When I left the conference, uh, Mike was kind enough to take care of our firstborn at the time. He actually put me up in a hotel uh, because I had like 33 people I wanted to call to ask forgiveness because I wanted to make sure I there was nothing between me and the Lord or me and anyone else. And it really, there wasn't even so much thought about anything anyone had done to me anymore. I felt so free of that, but I wanted to make sure I was, you know, I had resolved everything. So I called grandparents, aunts and uncles, brothers, friends, but people I had hurt or offended or mistreated or whatever it was, this particular aunt and uncle that I lived with during high school, I called them and I asked them both to get on the phone. I'm sure they wondered what on earth was going on. It's not like we ever parted badly. We just parted, but uh, got them both on the phone. And I just told them that, uh, you know, God had been doing some things in my life. And I just, uh, first of all, wanted to ask their forgiveness for ways that I made life difficult for them when I lived in, you know, in their home, you know, and they just really wanted to blow it off. Oh, you were a teenager. And, you know, they just let me off the hook. And, and then I just said, and what, you know, what I mostly want to express is just my, you know, just tremendous gratefulness to you for what you did for us to take us in the way that you did. And just from true heartfelt, you know, God-given gratefulness uh, for what they had done. And just like I said, there were so many people that I called uh, to resolve that. And I'm telling you, my life changed. My relationships changed. To this day, I would say, you know, I don't know that my brothers ever had that opportunity with them, but I feel like my relationship with them shows the reality of Christ's redemption, you know, in situations like that, that, uh, you know, I like with this aunt and uncle, I mean, we have a wonderful relationship today. They are far more expressive today toward me, encouraging me, you know, saying wonderful things about my marriage, my family, you know, how well we've done or whatever, you know, just things that would never have come from them before, from many of those relationships that I said were so difficult. Of course, the one with my dad, I consider a story of absolute redemption, uh, that we could just love on him the way that we did. And he saw genuine Christ-like love toward him, no strings attached. What an incredible picture of the healing that can come in our relationships, no matter how broken, when the love of Christ is poured out and allowed to work in our lives. As we wrapped up our time together, Susie reflected on what God has shown her through the many ups and downs of her walk with him, as well as specific advice she would give to others who have experienced similar trials. There is hope. God is our hope. That's who He is. And to run toward Him, to run toward those who know Him and that can 
hold up the proverbial arms, you know, of your faith, of your emotions, of your physical being during times of pain, trial, trauma. It's just so important to connect by God's design. We're not Lone Rangers. He designed us to need each other and to be there for each other. And so I would be in community with other close believers to help you through. One thing I did is wait way too long to get help, counsel. You know, I would seek that out right away and uh, just get support around you. You know, in terms of other things and related to matters of faith, you know, I say the same thing in terms of never give up hope. My grandfather, who is one of the most staunchest atheists I've ever known, he would go into a church service for a wedding or a funeral and be handed a communion wafer or something. And outside, I would see him pull it out of his pocket, crunch it up, and throw it to the ground. That's where he was coming from at 84 years old. After much prayer, after he went through a few things, he came to put his faith and trust in Jesus for, as his Savior, and it changed his life for the little that he had left. So just in every way, body, soul, or spirit, whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, whoever you're, you have a heart for and are concerned about, whatever burdens you're bearing, you know, get, get with God's people and uh, get that kind of support around you. Well, Susie, thank you so much for sharing your story. I think this is a very encouraging to me. And I know it will encourage many others who hear it as well. Thank you. What a privilege. Susie's story stands out for many reasons. After losing both of her parents and then being thrust into an unwelcoming environment, it's frankly shocking that Susie hasn't carried bitterness for the rest of her life. And that's really a testament to God's redeeming work in Susie's life and the resulting fruit. By extending undeserved forgiveness to her very sinful father, Susie was able to mirror in a very small way the same undeserved forgiveness that our perfect Heavenly Father extends to us. Let me encourage you, if you have come from a difficult background like Susie's, please know that the author of hope wishes to extend to you hope even today, just like he did for Susie. And if you feel convicted to offer forgiveness to someone else the same way that Susie did for her father, then please know that Christ's love is greater than any sin, just like it's described in 1 Peter 4.8, which says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. If you know someone who should hear this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. And if you would like to contact Susie with a question or to thank her for sharing her story, then you're welcome to email her. Her email is Susie at SusieJacobson.com. And just, you know, there are many different ways you could possibly spell that. It is spelled exactly like our episode title. So if you look at your podcast player right now, it's spelled Susie, S-U-S-I-E, Susie at SusieJacobson.com. And Jacobson is spelled J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N. So that's Susie at SusieJacobson.com. And by the way, if you would be interested in seeing Susie's story made into a feature-length movie, then you can actually do something about that right now. Susie's son, Nato, and I have actually worked on a few film projects in the past, and I was actually an associate producer for a short film he wrote and directed a while back called Wanted that you may have seen starring Andrew Chaney and Rusty Martin Jr. 
NATO is in the process of making a feature-length adaptation of his mother's story for the big screen, and he just launched a crowdfunding campaign that you should check out. If you would like to make a contribution to the production or just join the email list to follow along, then head over to suzyjacobson.com. And while you're there, you can watch several of the other short films that NATO made, including the one that I helped produce called Wanted. You know, Susie's journey actually reminds me of another compelled story that we did on the topic of domestic abuse. It's episode number 57 with Ramona Churko. For years, Ramona and her husband served in churches together. On the outside, it looked as though they had a picture-perfect marriage, but in reality, Ramona was carrying a dark secret. Her husband was emotionally and physically abusive, and Ramona had lost all hope. Until one day, she realized that the source of true hope had never left her at all. Again, that's episode number 57 with Ramona Churko. You can find it in your podcast app or on our website at compelledpodcast.com. Today's episode was edited by Will Jackson, story editing by Nathan Webster, sound engineering by Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is my lovely wife, Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from our next story with Mike Felch, who as a young man, desperately tried to fit in with any crowd who would accept him. During the day, he ran with a street gang, then at night, he was a computer hacker. But after being imprisoned behind bars, he heard about someone who would accept him just as he was. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story two weeks from now. We'll see you then. During the day, I'm out in the streets, um, what they call gangbanging, causing trouble during the day. But at night, I was a computer hacker. Um, but it led to some pretty serious uh, situations. Our our entire group, it was about 30 or 40 of us that um, ended up starting to get raided by the FBI. All of our computers got seized. Uh, my dad's work computers that were here got seized. Uh, and they pretty much just took everything that we had. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.